The following audio is from Delta Church in Springfield, Illinois. Our purpose is to proclaim the gospel through the church to a world that needs Jesus Christ. We pray this sermon will aid and encourage your daily walk with Jesus. For more information about Delta, you can visit us online at deltachurch.net. Scripture reading this morning is from Mark uh, chapter 14, starting in verse 26. If you're looking at uh, the Bible underneath your chair, it's on page 851. If you would stand with me for the reading of God's word. Mark 14, starting in verse 26 through verse 52. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. And Jesus said to them, You will all fall away, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. But after I am raised up, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though they all fall away, I will not. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I tell you, this very night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he said emphatically, If I must die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said the same. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. And he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and take and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled." And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we are continuing our journey, rapidly approaching the end of our study in Mark. And here we are in Mark 14, right um, near, near the end. If you go back a couple of weeks, this is where we are as we're marching through the steps in these final days, final hours, final minutes leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. If you remember back at the beginning of Mark 14, Mark has shown us that Jesus is worthy of prodigal worship. Then 
We saw that Jesus is the betrayed king, yet he is the sovereign king. Last week, we saw that Jesus has paid it all. His body, his blood are all that we need in order to find salvation, full and forever, forgiveness for sin in him alone. And now, as Mark continues to call us to come and observe the king, as I just said, as he's making his final steps in his journey to the cross, he's going to show us that Jesus is the king who is struck and abandoned. He's going to show us that Jesus is the king who will be struck by the Father. Jesus is the king who will be abandoned by his friends. And so let's pray. Let's ask for the power of the Holy Spirit to turn the preaching of His Word into a time of magnifying Christ, and then we'll launch into our study of our text, right? Jesus, we need You. We need You to open these Scriptures to us. We need You to help us see You. We need You to make us understand the deep, deep reality of you being struck by the Father, receiving the wrath of God that we deserve so that we may find life, forgiveness, salvation in you alone. Holy Spirit, this is going to be a time of words, but we don't want this to be in word only. I am asking that you would clothe me with power, that you would fill my brothers and sisters, Holy Spirit, so that this would be a time of the Spirit demonstrating His power so that our faith might come to rest in the power of God, Christ Himself. Help us to see. Change us this morning. Spirit, cause our hearts to burn within us as a result of the words of Christ being preached. It's in your name I pray. Amen. This morning, it's almost like it's an invitation. Mark is calling us to come and see Jesus the King who will be struck, Jesus the King who will be abandoned. And in the opening verses of our text, Mark tells us that Jesus and his disciples leave the Passover meal. That's what we looked at last week. And now they're making their way out to the Mount of Olives. If you remember, as Jesus and the Twelve are celebrating the Passover meal, um, for the past two Sundays we've looked at this reality. In the upper room, Jesus dropped a bombshell on the disciples. It was the bombshell of his betrayal. He said, one of you here are going to betray me. And now when we come out of the Passover meal, Jesus is making his way out of the city. He's crossing the Kidron Valley. He's moving up into the mountainside that is opposite Mount Zion where the temple of God was. They're making their way into the Mount of Olives. Mark tells us in verse 27 that it's not just going to be an issue of one person betraying Jesus. It's now going to be an issue of all of the disciples are actually going to fall away is what Jesus says in verse 27. And if you look in verse 27, what you'll notice is this, is that King Jesus grounds this reality of not just the betrayal of Judas, but the departure and the forsaking of the twelve, the remaining twelve. He couches it in Old Testament Scripture. 
When you go and you look at the Old Testament book of Zechariah, in chapter 13, verse 7, Jesus pulls that verse forward, and in verse 27 of Mark 14 says this here, Guys, it is written, you will all fall away, and the reason why I'm telling you you will all fall away, quoting Zechariah, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. The I there in the I will strike is the Lord God himself. You see, in John chapter 10, Jesus has told us already at this stage in the game that he is the good shepherd. And so when Jesus quotes this verse from the book of Zechariah, he is saying that this prophecy found in that Old Testament book, one, that the shepherd will be struck, and two, that the sheep, that is the disciples, the followers of the shepherd, will be scattered. Jesus is saying that Old Testament prophecy finds its fulfillment in me, specifically in this moment that we are lingering on the edge of. And my argument for us this morning is that when Jesus says there in verse 27, it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Really what he's doing, it's almost like he's giving us a table of contents for this morning. So that as we go forward into Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane praying, it's Jesus wrestling with the reality that the Father is going to strike him. And then in the remaining part of our text this morning, whenever the disciples abandon him and flee, it is Mark showing us that what Jesus said is going to come to pass absolutely comes to pass. The sheep, the disciples, they are going to scatter. So the first thing that Mark wants us to see this morning, if you skip down to verse 32 through 42, is this. The shepherd is going to be struck. The shepherd is going to be struck. Mark writes that Jesus and the disciples went to a place called Gethsemane. You go and you look at the other Gospels, it's this idea that it's actually a garden over on the Mount of Olives. It's a special place where many say that Jesus had some connection to. He would go there often and pray. And so now in the waning hours of his life, at this stage in the game, we are creeping up on the latter hours of Thursday. So think like 10, 10 30, 11, 11 30 at Thursday night, and it's going to roll over into the wee hours of Friday morning. Three o'clock Friday morning, Jesus is going to be dead. So we're right here on the very edge, the verge of Jesus, the Christ, being crucified And what does Jesus want to do? He wants to go and pray to the Father. Mark tells us that he says to his disciples in the garden, sit here while I pray. And he takes with him the three, Peter, James, and John, and he begins to notice the language that Mark uses to describe Christ grappling with the reality of the striking that is soon to come. He begins to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he falls to the ground, staggers under the weight of what he knows is coming, and prays that if it is possible, this hour might pass from him. You see, it was just last week that we sang the chorus during our time of worship that I'll never know how much it cost to see my sin upon the cross. 
And if there's ever a place in Scripture where we truly see just how little we know about the immeasurable cost of Jesus bearing the sins of the world, it starts to play itself out here in verse 32. It is so easy for us to read, yeah, Jesus distressed, Jesus troubled, soul sorrowful, even the death. It staggers into the ground and just to skip right over that and move on down the line. But Jesus is sitting here wrestling with the realities of the weight of the sin of the world being poured out on him in a righteous act of judgment. Mark gives us a picture of Jesus in the garden and it's a picture of Jesus in prayer. Because of these realities, Mark tells us that his crucifixion draws close. He's distressed, he's troubled, he's sorrowful to death. The whole scene is that of Jesus just wrestling with the striking that is soon to come. It's him agonizing over the cup that he is soon to drink. When you go down into the further verses, specifically down into verse 36, this language of Jesus praying, remove this cup from me. And it's that phrase whenever you go into the Old Testament, the cup, it's a metaphor, it's a word picture that was used all over the place in the Old Testament where the cup was a metaphor for the wrath of God that would be poured out on human evil. The cup is this word picture that the Old Testament prophets would often use to communicate the outpoured judgment of God that is going to come against sin. You see, Jesus is the good shepherd, and he knows the cross is coming, and he knows what the cross is going to entail. He's been telling us about this all through the latter part of Mark, Mark 8, Mark 9, and Mark 10. Jesus is saying, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die, I'm going to rise again. So he knows what's coming. As Isaiah's suffering servant, he knows his suffering and death is divinely ordained for Isaiah 53.10. It is the will of the Lord to crush him. But in the Garden of Gethsemane, as Jesus looks into the cup he must soon drink, he is astonished and overcome with horror, I believe. Because the cup he must drink is a cup that is full of sin. In that moment, Jesus saw the brutality of humanity, I believe, in the garden. He sees all the idolatry of earthly civilizations. He sees the blasphemy committed day in and day out. He sees the profanity on the lips of his creation. He sees a cup that's brimming with jealousy, brimming with hatred, and brimming with envy. And he's recognizing, I, the sinless one, am going to take that and drink it in its full. And it's because the cup was a cup full of sin, King Jesus, I believe, also sees that this cup was a cup full of God's wrath against sin. Listen, God's wrath is real. God's wrath is real. But so often we overlook this attribute of God because we are prone to craft a lowercase g God in our own image. We say things all the time like this, my God's a loving God, my God is not a God of wrath. We shirk at the reality of a God whose attribute is love but who is simultaneously a God 
who has attributes and characteristics of anger and wrath. You see, the Bible repeatedly warns us to not overlook the very real truth of God's wrath. You see, the wrath of God, the reason why I think we so often shirk at this truth of who our living God is, is because we see very sin-filled portrayals of wrath every day around us. We see people who just fly off the handle when they don't get their way. We see people who react spontaneously to petty things and get veiny-necked and red-faced and explode for no reason seemingly whatsoever. And what we do is say, I see awful, sin-filled reactions of anger and wrath all around us, and if you're telling me that's the way my God is, I don't want anything to do with that. My God's the God of love. But when you read the Old Testament Scriptures, when you read the New Testament Scriptures, because so often people are like, yeah, the Old Testament God's angry, the New Testament God's good, and somehow there's two different gods. God's one in essence, three in person. Your Old Testament God is the New Testament God. He's one. You see it shot through the New Testament, through the Old Testament. This idea that God is a God, yes, who's holy, yes, who's loving, but yes, who exhibits wrath. And the wrath of God, we must strike from our mind the sin-filled, man-centered reactions of anger and wrath that we wrongly import and ascribe to the living God. See, God isn't some spontaneous, reactionary, petty being who just gets outbursts over things that don't matter. Like he's just some sort of cosmic child who flies off the handle in a red-faced rage whenever things don't go his way. We need to strike that from our mind. No, the Bible consistently teaches that the wrath of God, listen, the wrath of God is the settled inevitable reaction of a God who is holy, a God who is good, a God who is loving. And because our God is holy, and because our God is good, and because our God is loving, He must be angry at sin. And He must be angry enough to do something about it. Right now, in just my mind, it's just drifting to a piece of commentary that I was just reading and thinking last week, and I think this illustration will just help us this morning. We have a category in life right now for people we know who are the most loving people in the world, but they're people who get angry. Do we not? I love my children, and I would lay my life down for my children in a nanosecond. But I know there are forces of evil in this world that are set out against my oldest. I'm just going to pick on her, my daughter. And you got to know that because I love my daughter and there are forces of evil that will seek to undo her and her purity and her sincerity, I will be angry when someone in evil and wickedness tries to come and do something to harm my daughter. you got to know my love is going to result in anger. And God, if I am a good father you got to know the good Father is going to, in love, be angry at the things that are seeking to undo that which He's created and that which He loves. God is love. He 
He is loving. We read it from 1 John chapter 4. But there in those verses, it talks about how in love, God sends Christ as the propitiation for our sins. It's the $3 theological word that none of us know because no one uses the word propitiation. But propitiation can simply be summed with this, the wrath-absorbing substitute. So do you hear what it is? God, who is love, in love, 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 sends his son to be the wrath-absorbing substitute. The Apostle John has no qualms with stitching together the love of God and the wrath of God in the beauty of Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 4. That's sort of the mini-sermon in the sermon, I guess, right there. You guys can go and check that one out, okay? So the Bible consistently teaches that the wrath of God is the settled, inevitable reaction of a God who is holy, a God who is good, a God who is loving. And it's because our loving God is holy, it's because he's good, because he is loving, he must be angry at sin. How awful would it be for a God to go, sin? The thing that is condemning people to hell forever? Damning them to an eternity of separation from me? you know, okay, sirrah, sirrah, I guess some things just got to be in life. That would be the most unloving thing. In love, he's going to do something about it. And now all of this, when you just sort of take all these streams of these realities of God holy, God good, God loving, and you see them flowing into our text this morning, all of this is wrapped up in the imagery of that little phrase, the cup. The cup. And what Jesus is doing in the Garden of Gethsemane, what He's recognizing and realizing as the cup looms right in front of Him is, I've got to drink this cup. This cup of sin, this cup of wrath. And it's this dual reality of the cup which I believe shakes Jesus to his core. Staggers him to the ground. That's what it says over there, right? My soul is sorrowful, even the death. That, I think, has probably got a sermon in and of itself. Have you ever been so sorrowful that you literally felt like you're going to... I don't think this is hyperbole on Jesus' part. I think Jesus' soul is lingering on the edge of the reality of what he recognizes he is soon to consume by the hand of the Father that he's so sorrowful that he's nearly about to die. Just for the sorrow of it all. And then there he is, staggering to the ground. It's not because he tripped on a twig. It's because the weight of it all is crushing him to the ground. His humanity, man, I love the perfect humanity. I think what we're seeing is the beautiful, perfect humanity of the God-man wrestling with the crushing that is soon to come his way. And it leads Jesus to say, Abba, Father, all things are possible for, for you. Would you remove this cup? And when Jesus prays for the removal of this cup, I, I think it's important for us to know that this is not a prayer for Jesus to somehow just avoid the physical pain that he's going to endure on the cross. Like the suffering, the physical suffering of the cross, that wasn't his, his concern, the concern of his soul in this, in this moment mainly. I mean, Jesus, fully human, 
He knows what crucifixion's about. I think those realities are there, but I don't think that's mainly what's leading him to be distressed and troubled and sorrowful to death and staggering to the ground. No, I think the prayer that Jesus is offering up to the Father, remove this cup from me, was because Jesus knew, listen, the spiritual suffering he would endure as he would bear the sins of the world and drink to the last drop the fierce wrath of God as our substitute. I think what's staggering him to the ground is less the physicality of it all, but it's the spirituality of it all. Jesus was about to be exposed to the one thing in life that he's never been exposed to before, the indescribable experience of feeling himself to be forsaken by the Father. We sang it this morning, how deep the Father's love, the Father turns his face away. He knows this is soon to come, and it's staggering him to the ground. So listen, think of all the times that you've lied, all the times that you've stolen. Think of the times that you've lusted at others. Think of the times that you've twisted God's good design of sexuality. Think of the times you've abused alcohol. Think of the times that you've abused feud. Think of the times you've abused others. Think of the times that you've taken God lightly. Think of the times when you've taken his name in vain. I see this all the time. Oh my God. Saints, those words should not linger on our lips like that. We hammer out OMG on Facebook all the time and Twitter. We just toss up an oh my God all the time. And I'm promising you in that moment, I highly doubt that you're worshiping God in full, honest sincerity. Think of the time that we've taken God's word lightly where he says, glory will be brought to my name when you do this. Glory will be brought to my name when you don't do this. And we look at the do and the don't, we go, I want to do what I want to do. I know what God's good way is for me, and I'm going to go my own path. Think of the times we've harbored bitterness. Think of the times we've held on to anger, sought our own revenge, that we've cut someone down with our words. Think of the times we've been impatient, proud, boasting in self. Think of all the thousands of times we've been marked by unrighteousness, evil, covetousness and malice. Think of the times we've been full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. Think beyond ourselves to the thousands of ways men past, men and women present, men and women in the future are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless, all these and many more that remain unnamed are summed up with a singular word in the Bible, and that word is called sin, S-I-N, sin. And the Bible clearly says that to be marked by sin is to fall short of the glory of God. Meaning that you and me, we who do these things and think these things and speak these things fall short of the glory of God. And because we fall short of the glory of God, the Bible clearly says we are separated from God. 
And the just penalty from God for our sin is for us to be on the receiving end of His judgment. The just penalty for our sin is to be cut off from the Father's love. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, this, I believe, is what it means to be stricken and smitten by God. But it's in a place called Gethsemane where we find Jesus wrestling with the reality of what it means to be stricken and smitten by God because He is the one who will drink the cup of God's wrath against sin. The sorrow of soul that has Him on the edge of death is the recognition that He is soon to be abandoned by and separated from His Father as He answers for every sin, as He answers for every crime, as He answers for every act of malice, as He answers for every injury as he answers for every evil in the world. And as the gravity of the cross presses in on Jesus in the garden, Luke tells us that we find him sweating great drops of blood because he is soon to bear our griefs. He is soon to carry our sorrows. He who knew no sin is soon to be wounded for our transgressions. He's soon to be crushed for our iniquities so that the chastity that would come to him would bring us peace and the stripes that would be laid upon him would bring us healing. In other words, Jesus is in the garden crying out, Abba, Father, remove this cup from me because he knows the cross means he will be the one stricken and smitten by God in our place as our substitutionary sacrifice. This is rolling itself out right in front of us here in Mark chapter 14. And in the fullness of this humanity, this is something that causes Jesus to stagger. Yet, yet Jesus enters the darkness of Gethsemane. And he enters into the very near deep darkness of Calvary. With the declaration, listen, the money shot, you need to look in your Bible, it's verse 36. He enters into these things with what phrase? Not what I will, but what you will. So here's Jesus fully knowing what's coming his way as the substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. And he says, not what I will, but what you will. Listen, you and me, we are the ones who deserve the striking of the Father. We're the ones who have caused and committed the sin. But the good news of Jesus is that he came to do the Father's will. And at the cross, the wine of God's wrath was poured out in full and consumed to the last drop by Jesus so that he, listen, so that he would receive all that we deserve and in return we receive all that he deserves. That's the great exchange of the gospel right there. As the sin bearer, 
Jesus became the object of the Father's holy wrath against sin. For our sake, God made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him, so that in Christ, so that in the sin bearer, so that in the cup drinker, you and I might become the righteousness of God. You see, this is the good news of the cross. The one who believes in the Son will not suffer God's wrath for their sin because the Son took God's wrath upon Himself when He died in our place on the cross. And Paul drives this truth home in Romans chapter 5 when he says this, For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Can we kick that forward to Romans 5 up there? For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Do you guys see that there? For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. Listen to this. But God shows His love. There it is. For us, in that while we were still sinners. Very important word there. It doesn't say God shows His love for us because you were awesome. Had your act together. I did a couple minor things that might have deserved a slap on the hand, but nothing real big, right? No. But God shows His love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Notice this here. Since therefore we have now been justified by His blood, much more shall we be saved. Notice by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, <laughs> can you hear the tone in Paul's voice? Like, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. How much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by life? How deep the Father's love for us. How vast, beyond measure, that He should give His only Son to make this wretch His treasure? How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns His face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons, many daughters to glory. Saints, this is the good news of the cross. I don't know how else to say it to you this morning. This is the good news of the cross this morning. It was the will of the Father to crush His beloved Son so that you will not have to stand before Him on that day of judgment and be crushed for your own sins. You can go and flee the wrath to come by going to your shelter, Christ Jesus, and in faith looking to Him, saying, I am trusting in you and you alone, the cup drinker, the sin bearer, 
So that on that day, the crushing that has to come for sin, this isn't an issue of is the Father going to crush or not going to crush. He will crush on that final day. But for those of us looking to Christ in faith, we stand before the Father saying, I know that you as the good judge must crush your for his sins. But you got to know I'm trusting in Jesus over here. And on that day, those trusting in the crushing of the Christ will find eternal life. And those who stand there on that day saying, I am not trusting in Christ and His crushing, the Father will say, the crushing must come and it will land on you. Jesus is the King. He's going to be struck by the Father, but saints, I hope you see that it's good news. And notice that because the good shepherd's going to be struck by the Father, this just means he's going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Let me just highlight a couple of things here, verses 43 through 50. Just, just notice this, that the thing that we've been talking about a while ago, Jesus is the betrayed king. It, it works itself out, does it not? He's sovereign. He knows it's coming. Right now, Judas and the betrayal, it works itself out. The word seize shows up a bunch. Verse 44, seize him and lead him away. Verse 46, they come lay hands on him and seize him. Jesus says, why are you coming at me like I'm some robber or revolutionary? You do not try to seize me. But then ultimately there in verse 49, if you see that in the scriptures, let the scriptures be fulfilled. Listen, what Judas is going to do is going to be fulfilled. The shepherd is going to be struck. That's got to be fulfilled. The sheep are going to scatter. That's got to be fulfilled. But the saddest verse I think found in our whole section, our whole chunk of scriptures this morning has easily got to be verse 50, does it not? And they all left him and fled. The striking of the shepherds begun, the scattering of the sheep's complete, and guess what? Now the shepherd has been abandoned. The shepherd's abandoned. Not only to face the Father's judgment alone, but guess what? To continue the remainder of his journey to the cross alone. And what Mark gives us is this piercing image of loneliness as Jesus is deserted by his closest friends who an hour ago were convinced of their inability to, to flee from Jesus, right? You go back up into verses 28 through 31, you guys are all going to go. It's written in the scriptures. Good old Peter, man. I love Peter. Don't you just love the way that brother just opens mouth, inserts foot basically every time he speaks? Because it's like, man, like, I see myself, man. Like, you're supposed to look at this and be like, yeah, man, I would have been like Jesus. I wouldn't have ran away. Bro, you would have ran away. You would have been there on the front end. Ah, I don't care what the scriptures say. I don't care the prophecy is going to be fulfilled. It ain't going to be me. It might be these guys. You see that over there, remember? Even though they might all fall away, I'm not going to do it. And all the other disciples were like, man, we need to jump in on this, man. We don't want to look the fool. And that, right, right, right in verse 31, and they all said the same. We will not deny you, verse 50, and they all left him and fled. And then you got those curious couple of verses there. Even the anonymous guy tucks tail and runs, right? Verse 51 and 52, a young man followed Jesus with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him. They left the linen cloth, and he ran away naked. You read this, and you're like, what on earth is that about? Believe me, no commentator knows any, no, no commentator knows it either. Like, who is this about? The best that we can conjecture is uh, that that young man is probably Mark himself, 
That's the best guess that most people come up with. And so, like, as you just see Mark even wrestling with these realities, like, man, even I, even I took off, but we don't know that for sure. It's unclear, but the one thing when we come to in verse 52 that is clear is that Jesus has been deserted by everyone, hasn't he? The striking of the shepherds begun. Jesus has been left entirely alone to face the wrath of wicked men and drink the cup of the wrath of God. Again, it's all going to be so that he would receive what we deserve so that we might receive all that he deserves. So let me just ask you this question here and we'll wrap it up. So the question I have for you this morning is this. Have you believed in the Son of God for eternal life? Have you believed in the Son of God for eternal life? Now, why am I asking you this question? It's because in John chapter 3, verse 36, the Apostle John tells us this. Listen. Whoever believes in the Son of God has eternal life. Whoever is looking to the Son of God, that's Jesus, faith alone. Christ alone. I am believing in the Son to be the Savior. I am believing in the Son to be my wrath-absorbing substitute. I am believing in the Son as my only hope of salvation. I am believing, I am trusting, I am looking to the Son for the forgiveness of my sin. The promise of John chapter 3, verse 36 is this. Whoever you are here this morning, if you are looking to the Son of God alone, As your only hope of salvation, you have eternal life. But listen to the opposite promise. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on them. Do you see the dual promises there? Either you are here this morning saying, I am trusting in the Son of God as my only hope of salvation, and you have the Holy Spirit speaking through the Apostle John, giving us the promises of God. You have eternal life if you're in this place this morning. But the exact opposite is true of you this morning. If you're here going, I am not trusting in the Son of God. The wrath of God remains on you. The one who believes in the Son will not suffer God's wrath for his sin, but those who do, be, do not believe in the Son, who do not receive him as Savior, the promise is that you will be judged on the day of wrath that's to come. So again, after hearing the good news of the shepherd who took God's wrath upon himself on the cross, the question is, have you believed in him and him alone for eternal life? Can I just encourage you, beg you to, Flee the wrath to come. This isn't an issue of maybe wrath and judgment is going to come. I'm telling you, wrath and judgment is going to come because the other attribute of God is that He is just. He will not turn a blind eye to sin, and one day you will stand before Him and either receive the crushing for your sin or you will look to the Savior and just go... I don't know why I'm even here. I mean, I'm just looking to him. I believe he was crushed in my place. I'm trusting in him alone, and the Father's going to go. That's the heart of faith right there, looking to my son.
trusting in him and him alone. So without getting all veiny-necked and red-faced, can I just encourage you, which is the most awfulest, probably low-key word I could actually offer you right now, to consider fleeing the wrath to come by looking to Christ, your wrath-absorbing substitute. Let's pray. Father, help us. We need you bad. We need you bad. Awaken our souls, Father. Awaken us. Help us to see those of us who are in Christ. Father, I pray that the wrath-absorbing substitute, Jesus Christ himself, would awaken our hearts to respond with worship here in the next few minutes. Father, for those here this morning who are far from you, who will be crushed by you if they do not come, repenting and believing, turning from sin, turning to you. They will be crushed on that final day. God, I pray, Holy Spirit, would you soften their heart, start pounding their heart, breaking down that stone veneer of the heart, make it soft, make it receptive, draw them to you. Father, do these things for your name's sake and glory. Amen.